Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Mojo in the corridors of blood. Episode one. Death rolls the dice. Come, my friend. Sit down, sit down. Pull up a chair by the fire. Do not be afraid. I do not uh, bite. A drink? Yes, by all means, here. Let me pour you a glass. Now, are you sitting comfortably? A question, if I may be so bold. What do you know of fear? You may think that you know fear, though I can assure you, you do not. Your fear is of the petty kind, the tremor of the nerves when walking past undesirables on the filthy streets, the sick feeling in your carefully cultivated stomach when opening a bank statement or a bill. No, my friend, you do not know fear. In the last minutes of his life, Quentin Doe knew fear, real fear. A hospital room. Somewhere, a bell tolls. The time is 2 a.m., the witching hour. Quentin Doyle, in his 40s, short hair, large gut, wearing white robes, wakes up in a hospital bed. His heart pounds, his body inexplicably drenched in sweat, despite the cold night air. As is always the case with true fear of the worst kind, Doyle did not know why he was afraid. The fear he felt was akin to that of an animal, tense and trapped, somehow sensing that an as yet unseen predator was lurking nearby, flexing its claws and licking its lips. Looking around the dark shadows of his hospital room, illuminated only by the green glare of a cheap electronic bedside clock, Quentin Doyle could see nothing. The room was silent, holding its breath, bloated with the promise of violence that hung in the air. Quentin Doyle tries to get up, only to find himself cuffed to the bed by one wrist. He doesn't seem too surprised, and he slumps back down on the bed, wincing with pain. Rubenstein, you old hag. I'll get you for this. Doyle was a self-styled gentleman thief by trade, though in his case, the accuracy of the term was debatable at best, since he made a living by seducing and swindling elderly women. In fact, it had been a piece of incompetence involving his latest would-be victim, which had landed him here, one Mrs. Rubenstein, an old dear who he had been poisoning for some months, drip, drip, dripping his own special concoction of over-the-counter medicines and household cleaning products into her milk. Strangely, his potion had also had the unfortunate side effect of making the coffin dodger rather frisky, though this he had bravely taken in his stride, deeming the indignity to be part of his job, and hoping that her cursedly strong heart might give out during one of their awkward copulations. It had not, and growing distaste had pushed Quentin Doyle to a more hands-on approach planning to strangle the randy hag and to burn down the house in the manner of a domestic accident. All had been going well 
until he had mistakenly doused himself with pure alcohol. Foolishly aware of the spillage, he set his own legs afire while the house steadfastly refused to burn. And so, here lay Quentin Doyle, grateful that his health insurance had been so kind as to provide him with a private room in a reasonably respectable hospital. Although his injuries were minor, his pride had been savaged, and he had been passing the time imagining the tortures he would inflict on Mrs. Rubenstein, who he held fully responsible for his embarrassment. Slowly, softly, the handle of the room's door begins to turn. Oh, officer, is that you? The door opens. At first, just a crack, and then wider. Some thing slips inside and closes the door behind it. A hideous stench fills the room, conjuring images of charnel houses and unquiet graves. Doctor? It's you, Doctor, isn't it? A hulking figure lurks in the shadows, twitching and shaking as it watches and waits. Who's there? Mr. Ham? I'll have your money soon, I promise. As if sensing the abject terror in his voice, the figure jumps up and down several times, waving long arms with horrible excitement. Quinton Doyle gasps and pushes himself back against the wall, the handcuff jingling against the metal of his bread frame. The thing lopes forward, and we hear its fevered breathing, the ghastly smack of hungry wet lips. Unable to look his killer in the face, Quentin Doyle closes his eyes. Oh Lord, protect me and deliver me, for I have tried to live a good life. His prayers, too late, too late, fall on deaf ears. A huge hand, rough and twisted, creeps under the sheets and grabs his naked leg, pulling him closer and into a monstrous embrace. Quinton Doyle's bladder loosens involuntarily, soaking the bed with warm piss, and the fiend chuckles as it sniffs the air appreciatively. As it bends close to the green light, we see a glimpse of horribly ruined flesh, covered with tufts of black hair and sores slick with pus. Mercy, please! My God, where are you? Briefly, its other hand caresses his face unkindly before moving to his throat, silencing him. It squeezes, choking the breath from his body before releasing him and treating him to a stinging slap across his face. Shocked back to his senses, Quinton Doyle begins to struggle, but to no avail. Pulling him down firmly, the figure reaches with its free hand for an empty glass that sits next to the bedside clock. The hand grabs the glass and smashes it over Quinton Doyle's face, lacerating his flesh and ruining his average looks. Before he can even scream, it takes the jagged remains of the glass and tears open his throat. Red gore fills the air, driving the killer into a frenzy, and it rips the wound with cruel hands, pulling out chunks of fleshy viscera and flinging them joyously across the room. Yes, Quinton Doyle knew fear. And having mastered that simple, primal emotion, his dying brain got to grips with agony. Something at which he proved to be an admirably fast learner. <laughs>
leaving Quentin Doyle to his fate, we move to an altogether more convivial scene the following day. A large marijuana joint is being smoked. The thick vapour is dancing in the air in a living room of modest size and decor. The walls covered with an eclectic mix of film posters, with the likes of Bloodwatch and Big Stick Massacre, plastered proudly next to Brave Mickey the Leukemia Child and Great Plover. The joint is being smoked by a chimpanzee, dressed in a black and white butler suit. This is Mojo! And beside him, on a ragged sofa, sits Jones, his best friend in all the world. A Scottish man, whose age may be charitably guessed in his late 20s or early 30s, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. He too smokes a joint. The two are playing a video game called Flesh Slap, a loose adaptation of a recent motion picture event that revolves around the players flaying the skin from each other with the aid of whichever household implements come to hand. Despite his large, awkward-looking paws, which clutch the controller like a bunch of bananas trying to roll dice, Mojo is actually winning. Whether this was due to simian skill or human incompetence was open to debate, though in either case, the rivalry between the best friends was on the verge of turning nasty. Stop peeing, you damn dirty fucking ape! Keep this up and I'm sending you back to the science lab! Mojo reacts angrily to the slur and starts thrashing the controller off the ground. Jones grabs it from him and they tussle. In the middle of this, a girl storms into the room, dressed in denim and leather, carrying a suitcase. She is Caramel, Jones' girlfriend, and she looks furious. She stands in front of the screen. Uh, oh, hey, hey baby, you, you going somewhere? What the hell is that monkey doing here? Who, Mojo? Uh, <laughs> we're just playing some video games, you know, hanging out, you know? Clearly, this is the wrong answer. God damn it, I told you yesterday, either the monkey goes or I go. Oh, but baby, he's got no place to go. He can't just throw a monkey out in the streets at this time of year. Fine. She turns to leave. Jones stumbles off the couch and tries to stand in her way. What? You're leaving me? But why? Haven't I given you everything you wanted? Everything I wanted? Everything I wanted? You want to know why I'm leaving you? She moves towards Jones, jabbing at him with her finger. He cowers. No? You are telling me that nowhere in that tiny stupid brain of yours did you ever think even for one second that spending all your time with that damn monkey and drinking your damn beer watching your damn video wasn't like the best way to treat your girlfriend? Really? She advances on him and he backs off further towards the sofa. Leaving me go to bed, I swear, every fucking night by myself and for food. You never even took me to a fancy musical like you promised. But, 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 it's hard to get tickets for those things. You've got no ambition, no girls, and now you've got no girlfriend. But... But nothing. Look at that monkey. Why the hell is he wearing a butler suit? Does he ever do anything? Does he ever help around the house? Mojo grins at her in a placatory fashion. It doesn't work. Caramel throws her hands in the air and turns to leave. I've had enough of this. I'm doing what I should have done a long time ago, Jones. I am leaving your lazy ass. 
Bobby Hart says I can move into his trailer and he can get me a job in one of his movies. What do you think of that? You can't leave. I love you. You love me? Well, well, no, but if you leave, I, I can't afford the rent. Really? She pushes Jones out of the way and stamps on one of the video game controllers, breaking it. She storms out of the room without another word. Jones slumps onto the couch, a defeated man. Mojo pats him on the shoulder. Oh, she's right, Mojo. Look at me, man. I'm a loser. I got nothing in my life. Nothing. Mojo starts rummaging around the sofa. I really like that girl, Mojo. I mean, sure, she wasn't perfect, and sure, I mean, I didn't actually like her, but now we've seen it's pretty clear she didn't actually like me, but still, you know, we had something, and now it's gone. Mojo finds a can of beer and raises it triumphantly. He waves it under Jones's nose. A beer? <sighs> no, thanks, buddy, but I think I'd better time, take some time off, you know, clean myself up a bit and get sober, you know? Maybe she had a point. Maybe it's time I sorted my life out. Mojo looks alarmed. He puts the can up to Jones's ear and pops the ring pull. Jones whips the can out of Mojo's paw and downs it. <sighs> Aye, thanks, pal. I feel much better now. Go after her? Nah, hell with it. Don't you worry, we'll find a way to pay the bills and, you know, even if we have to dress you up like a hooker, send you down the docks again, huh? <laughs> Mojo is glad to see his buddy cheered up. Jones fishes out a TV remote control from under all the junk on the couch. There's a soap opera of some description playing, so he flicks through the channels and finds what looks to be coverage of a political march. Come, this seems interesting. Let us take a closer look. We are now on the streets of a city, and I tell you, my friend, death was busy that day. It was a beautiful morning, the town bathed in sunshine, awakening its prestigious population of flies, and glinting off the oily waters that clogged its drains and gutters. There's a carnival atmosphere, and people are cheering and waving flags, holding up children for a better view. A sudden burst of distant music sends a ripple of frenzy through the mob, resulting in a few brief scuffles. Although the hour was early, many of the crowd had started as they meant to continue, and were already drunk. A brass band marches down the road playing some good time music, followed by twirling majorettes. Behind them comes a politician and his entourage, flanked by black-suited bodyguards and a couple of limousines. The politician is Benjamin Tom, a popular liberal candidate, noted nice guy, and a real everyman figure, well known for her fighting for queer rights and for helping the homeless. Perhaps in his 60s, and with the well-preserved, suntan look of a TV game show host, Benjamin Tom is walking down the street, shaking hands, waving, and spreading the good word. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you. I'm your man. I'm, I'm here to serve you. His bodyguards are constantly scanning the crowd, keeping the good people at arm's length. A news reporter, standing by the press enclosure, near the crowd, carrying a microphone, wearing a blue suit, tanned, not as tanned as Benjamin Tom, but tanned nonetheless, and his teeth as white as the bones of the sun-bleached dead. The reporter is one Donald Mace. The van is vibrantly bright blue, 
with large flaming logo, fast track news. Benjamin Tom draws near, still pressing the flesh and smiling for the cameras. What a show! I haven't seen anything like this since the Pope came to town! In the background, Benjamin Tom pulls a screaming baby from the arms of his drunken mother and tries to plant a kiss on his cheek. Look at that! Benjamin Tom just kissed another baby! I make that five so far today, plus an amazing uh, eight pensioners and a young woman who may or may not have tried to slap him. Benjamin Tom spots him and approaches, throwing himself in front of the camera. He puts his arms on Donald Mace's shoulders, working the camera for all it's worth, with a quick flash of unnaturally white teeth. And the trademark wink, which his sponsor had assured him was most winning. Determined to make the most of what might be his last shot at the big time, Donald Mace gets the ball rolling. Benjamin Tom, wow, you're on fire! Once he's certain that the cameras are firmly focused where they belong, on his handsome face, Benjamin Tom gives in to his one true weakness and his hand slides down to Donald Mace's rump with a surprising lack of subtlety. Donald Mace doesn't seem to mind, taking the groping as a sign of encouragement, and he presses on. Well, Ben, after, after coming under such heavy fire from right-wing groups, you really seem like a man with a point to prove. What message do you have for the fine people here today? Well, I, uh, I think my, my being here to... Despite the slings and arrows of outrageous, dis despicable um, fascism is a symbol of hope. With impeccable timing, he turns to the crowd, making a sweeping gesture. These, uh, these people came here today, needing someone to give them hope. That's me, I'm that, uh, I'm that man. And is there any truth to the rumors? You've been receiving death threats? What, what, uh, death threats? That's, that's news to, to me, where, where did you hear that? Looking worried, Benjamin Tom signals one of his bodyguards and whispers in his ear. Ben, in the coming election, where do you stand on the controversial new immigration bill? Well, um, yes, a good question. It's a, it's a complex issue, uh, certainly. Though I, I think what's important here is to look at the, um, the bigger picture and just making sure that we do what's right. After all, Everyone here just wants to be happy! He turns to the crowd again, who may or may not have heard what he said, and he motions to them to cheer, which they do obligingly. He winks at Donald Mace. And, um, and I think these fine people who have come here today know exactly where I, um, where I stand. And how? The crowds love you! It's like Jesus on the mount! Yes, um... Very kind for you to say so, though, um, if sweet holy JC had been half as, half as slick as me, he'd have been elected, not crucified. Benjamin Tom laughs, and he goes on his way. Unseen by him or his bodyguards, a small, curious figure starts to push its way through the crowd towards him. But back in Jones's living room, the small figure goes unnoticed by our two friends, who are still slumped in front of their TV, only half-watching the political rally. Jones yawns and checks his watch. <sighs> Alright, buddy. Um, okay, we've got like two hours, and then we got to go visit Frank in the hospital. <laughs> Don't worry, man. He doesn't blame you for the accident, huh? <laughs> Aye, well, too bad. 
You should have thought of that before you try to copy fucking Teen Wolf and wreck his bar in his legs. Least you can do is apologise, huh? <laughs> Don't worry about that. I've got a plan to get you past the hospital security. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. You need burlap slacks this time, I promise. Fuck's sake. Mojo isn't convinced. <laughs> Alright, how about this? I'll go make us some hot dogs. You pick us out a video to watch, okay? <laughs> Jones gets up off the couch and slouches towards the kitchen. Mojo leaps to the floor and starts raking through the piles of tapes. From the kitchen, we can hear Jones clattering around. Mojo seems to see a cockroach or something, and he grabs a video box and smacks it off the ground excitedly a few times. Something on the TV catches his eye, and Mojo is suddenly alert. Back on the street, Benjamin Tom continues on his way, becoming more and more enthusiastic. He stops, grabs a sign with Benjamin Tom save my ass in pink letters, and holds it up for the crowd and punches the air, his head thrown back. Ha ha ha, yes, yes, very good, yes, yes. He drops the sign and beats his chest like Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. He laughs and continues. In front of him, a small child, dressed in a hooded top, is leaning out over the barricade. As Benjamin Tom approaches, we can see the child looks somewhat strange and is wearing black gloves. Benjamin Tom reaches the kid and pulls him out of the crowd, turning for the cameras, laughing, holding him in his arms. The kid fumbles in his pocket, and we see the gleam of a razor being drawn. Quick as lightning, the kid slashes Benjamin Tom from ear to ear, spraying blood over the crowd and splattering a couple of the slogan boards. As Benjamin Tom slumps, dying, the kid leaps to the ground and makes a break for it in an odd, shambling run. There's chaos in the crowd as people try desperately to get out of the assassin's path. Benjamin Tom's bodyguards spring belatedly to life, joined by a group of policemen, a couple of them going to his twitching body and the rest in pursuit. The assassin scrambles up a wall and is on the point of escaping, and one of the policemen fires a shot, catching him in the back. Perched on the top of the wall, the assassin springs round, his hood falling back, revealing that he is in fact a chimpanzee. The killer screeches, swipes in the air at the stunned onlookers, then falls out of sight over the wall. Benjamin Tom lays in a pool of his own blood, while the panic-stricken crowd rush around, trampling his corpse. Back at Jones's flat, seeing another chimp on the TV, and seeing it commit such a heinous crime, Mojo is incensed, and he jumps up and down, trying to get Jones's attention. <laughs> He fails, and Mojo stands transfixed and astonished, staring at the killer chimpanzee. From somewhere, an evil voice echoes from the ether, laughing at the sight of Benjamin Tom's murder. Good night, my nauseatingly sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. In hell! <laughs> and so... What next? What next indeed? Make sure you tune in for the next episode of Mojo in the Corridors of Blood and you may learn much as our friends Mojo and Jones head closer to danger and the unseen arch fiend makes his calamitous schemes known.
Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Whiskey bikini. Mojo in the corridors of blood. <laughs>